And now, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, a special hello goes out to the director of media for the Boston Bruins alumni, Mr. Mark Boland. Nice to see you, Marky. Welcome to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the home of behind-the-scenes interviews, stories, and memories that celebrate the heritage of the great game of hockey. The Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast is hosted by Mark Willand. Welcome to episode 17 of the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, classic hockey stories from classic hockey players. By the way, can you identify that lead-in music? If so, consider yourself to be a true Bruins fan. For those who don't know, that song is Paris, which the legendary John Kiley played as the Bruins took the ice in the glory days. I think the Bruins need to get that song back at the game night rotation. Before we start the show, we want to thank you for the great feedback you've been giving us in iTunes, Facebook, and via email. It is greatly appreciated. The PHA Podcast is available everywhere. iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, YouTube, and anywhere you can find podcasts. Please take a moment to subscribe to the show and provide a rating or review. It helps others find the show more easily, and it provides me with a much-needed hit of dopamine. This week's guest needs no introduction, but he's going to get one anyway. What an honor to talk with this week's guest, my good friend and Boston Bruins legend, Rick Nifty Middleton. First round draft pick of the New York Rangers in 1973, Nifty scored 448 career goals and 988 career points in 14 sensational NHL seasons with the Rangers and the Bruins. He topped 40 goals and 90 points for five consecutive seasons in the 1980s, played in three NHL All-Star games and two Canada Cups. Now, while his stick handling and offensive flair were legendary, he also was a great two-way player and is the Bruins' all-time leader in shorthanded goals. Nifty is now the president of the Boston Bruins Alumni Association, which raises hundreds of thousands of dollars for those in need throughout the New England area and across North America. Nifty is one of the hockey's great ambassadors and is certainly worthy of having his number 16 hanging from the rafters of the Boston Garden. Prior to the interview, we want to tell you about an opportunity for fans to deliver their memories of Rick Middleton and the Boston Bruins right to Nifty himself. Nifty's audiobook library allows you to record, share, or even add a picture or two to your story of Rick and the classic Bruins of the 70s and 80s. Rick will add your story to his audiobook library and share it for all Bruins fans to enjoy. Rick talks about this opportunity during the interview, but to learn more, visit bostonbruinsalumni.com or audiolibrary.net. And now, here's Rick Nifty Middleton. We're back with our good friend, Rick Nifty Middleton. Rick Thanks for being with us here today. Great, Mark. Thanks for having me. 
I've uh, wanted to do this for a while. I'm glad we finally have the opportunity. It's a big month. I call it Nifty November here in 2018. As at the end of the month, of course, you'll be honored with uh, having your number raised to the rafters. And we'll talk about that. But sure. it's going to be quite a month for you. And I'm sure you'd be doing uh, one out of uh, this will be one out of about 500 interviews you'll be doing. So thanks for squeezing us in. I wanted to go back growing up in the Toronto area, Nifty. Uh, that was a time when the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs were a real force in the NHL, probably the last time that they consistently were a big force. George Armstrong, the Big right. M, Tim Horton. Was I know them all. I know them all, yeah. Horton and Stanley, Bond and Brewer, Johnny Bauer and that, the Big M, David Keon, all my boyhood idols. Now you sound like John Horgan being able to rattle those names off. <laughs> but uh... He knows everybody. I only know the old Leafs from the sixth season. I used to have every one of their hockey cards, and when when uh, the, the memorabilia uh, got uh, uh, to be a business, I called my mother and I said, uh, "Hey, mom, you still got those cards put away that I used to collect as a kid?" She, "Oh no, I threw those out a long time ago." I'm like, oh no. The, all the Stanley Cup teams, you know. Right. I think we all have that that same story, but we had fun with those cards. Um, oh, yeah. But I'm assuming the, the, it was, the Leafs were your team back then. Did you get a chance right. to see them at all in the garden uh, in person? Well, my father uh, started his own one-man printing business in the, uh, back in, in the day, and uh, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. Uh, I don't, I don't know many people that had much of money back in the sixties, but, uh, he had, uh, clients, you know, uh, that he did printing for that every once in a while would throw him tickets, but they were always grays. And in old Ma in Maple Leaf gardens, the grays were like the, the back of the balcony right. in, in the old Boston garden, yeah, but even farther away. But I didn't care. I was a young boy going to the, to see the Leafs play at, at Maple Leaf Gardens, and I didn't care if I had to stand up the whole time. And uh, I have I have a couple of, of very uh, vague memories, but I, I certainly remember it. Uh, and I think you know um, I get a lot of people coming up to me remembering when their dad took them to games and such, and and the era that they grew up in. And I did the same thing. I had the experience when I first went to the Boston Garden in the early 70s. It was an amazing life experience. I'll never forget walking uh, up the, the concourse and seeing that ice for the first time. Usually I used to see it on Channel 38. And so you'd right. have the, you know, not the same thing back then. It wasn't high definition TV. And I was just <laughs> stunned to see. Not by far. Most of the time it had snow on it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it must have been great to, uh, to, again, just to be able to see those Leaf teams. It was a, a great, as you said, you probably knew all the players. There's only 120 of them in the league. So. Um, well, exactly. So it wasn't, it wasn't hard to, to, to know all the players on the other team. So, you know. Uh, I even invented a, cause I, I used to have allergies as a kid and I, I'd be good for two weeks in bed with bronchitis every year. And so I, I, I through my imagination made up a game, a dice game <clears throat> where I would have games and, and standings and goals for and leading score and the whole bit. That's so really I, interesting. I memorized almost every player on, on the other teams also. So it's funny you say that. I got to meet a lot of them. Got to meet a lot of them as I, you know, turn pro. 
That's great. That's uh, that's a bit of statistical information I was unaware of in entrepreneurial as well. Uh, that's uh, that's very creative. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah. I often have those discussions. Right? When I refer to John Horgan, just to the fans, John is the uh, uh, almost has a, a, a basically his his mind is a computer that never gets turned off. He's just incredible. Yeah, game announcer doesn't fit John. No. And so he he's a big part of the Bruins alumni. He's the announcer, but he's also a uh, hockey story. And so when I refer to him, and I, I when Nifty just told the story about creating a dice game, it reminds me that both John and I did the same thing when we were kids as well. So, um, oh yeah, we're in good company. Um, yeah. Yeah. As you you've talked before, we've been at hockey camps together. You've talked to kids uh, a little bit about something that was very prominent in your area when you grew up, which was street hockey. Now that helped develop your hand-eye coordination and your overall feel for the puck when you get on the ice. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, uh, except in Canada they call it road hockey, but right. um, <laughs> down here they call it street hockey. But, um, yeah, growing up, uh, again, you know, there's three channels on TV, there wasn't a whole lot to do outside of play hockey. And when I wasn't on the ice, I was out on the street. We had a street light right out in front of our house at 80 Gilroy. And uh, it was a, an expanding um, suburb of Toronto at the time. And our street was fairly long, so it had a lot of houses on it. And But it was a side street. And uh, it seemed all the kids were about the same age, so... We had no lack of, of, of uh, I had no lack of ability to get all the kids we needed for a game. Sometimes I had to turn them away at, at times. Right. But it just seemed like there was always enough to, to have a game. We put the nets out on the ice, uh, out on the street. And, and then uh, if the plows came by on, on Saturdays and plowed and the, the, the banks were high enough, we'd allow checking. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds very familiar to a lot of fans uh, who are listening who grew up in Boston in the 1970s. Street hockey was king, yeah. and that's right. how I played most of my hockey. I didn't quite develop the hand-eye coordination as Rick Middleton, but nonetheless, it was fun. Uh, you oh, yeah. eventually find yourself, uh, you go from Junior B in Toronto, you end up with the uh, famed Oshawa Generals, a, a junior hockey program yeah. that you know spawned Bobby Orr and Terry O'Reilly, among others. Uh, had to be a big uh, and Wayne Cashman, and Wayne, Wayne Cashman yeah. too, right? So it had to be a big accomplishment. You're just a kid. Uh, you have to grow up in a hurry, and you're at Oshawa General. Talk a little bit about that, especially your, your first year, just that first year of junior hockey. Well, you know, um, when uh, they retire my jersey, I'm going to have my old coach, one of my old coaches. I only only have two growing up, really, and and this gentleman had me from the age of 13 to 16. It wasn't for him. His name's Frank Miller. I would never have made it to Oshawa, let alone to the NHL. I was a weak skater. Uh, I wasn't an ankle bender, but, you know, not pretty close to it. I kind of had a knack to put the puck in the net, but I wasn't a strong skater at all. He changed my skating around in three years so that when I was 16 in 1969, I got drafted by the Oshawa Generals. I had six full scholarship offers. One of them was the BU, but uh, I decided to play junior hockey. Uh, but the first year, I still wasn't big enough or strong enough, I, I felt, because the junior A hockey in those days, and I think it still is, it's on TV. So I was watching the Toronto Marlboros play on Sunday afternoons, and they were, like, to me as a kid, one one level below the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs. Right. I, mean, I, I was like, I'm, I don't think I'm ready for that. <laughs> so I played a year of B, like you said, in Toronto. 
um, for the Toronto Young Nationals, who I played with uh, under Frank Miller the first year they had a B team in Toronto. And uh, it really prepared me to go to Junior A. So uh, when I made it to Oshawa, which was really only a half hour from my house in Toronto, so I lived at home. I, I didn't have to leave home like those oh. guys do. Mm-hmm. And um, I uh, only played two years of Junior, which, you know, compared to a guy like Dennis Potman, who played five years of Junior A, I only played two. And, and luckily, my best year was my last year, and it was, was my draft year. And I ended up scoring the most goals in the league that year. Uh, thanks to my line mates um, and uh, and teammates, and uh, went on to get drafted in the first round. So things just kind of fell into place. But it, it wasn't uh, you know it wasn't the, the road that a lot of people think uh, that it was paved right to the NHL. No, not initially. <laughs> right. Do you remember uh, in Ottawa goaltender Gilles Gratton? Sure. Yeah, in Oshawa, I played with him my first year. So he ended up getting the name Looney for his eccentric habits. Uh, <laughs> well, the, he played was, in New York too, right? The Rangers. Yeah. Was, was he was, was he a little different as a teenager, or did yeah? yeah apparently, he used to like do a little transcendental meditation, and uh, on game days, like go to go to Spain or somewhere. I, I read, <laughs> but um, no, I didn't know him all that well. But he was, you know, they always laugh at French goalies, so. Right. He was, he was. Maybe that's one of the reasons that they they think they're a little different or stranger than most people. Absolutely. You know? hey, when you were drafted by the New York Rangers, you're all, during those days. There was a bidding war uh, or a battle for players between mm-hmm. the New World Hockey Association and the NHL. You're also drafted by the Minnesota Fighting Saints, I believe. Of the w, right. of WHA, had, had did they contact you? Did they make an effort to sign you prior to your signing with New York? No, not really. I think uh, for two reasons. Uh, one, I, I went first round to the Rangers, the NHL. Second round to the WHA. If it was the other way around, there might have been a little more um, uh, yearning to sign me, uh, for lack of a better word. But right. and secondly, I had Alan Eagleson as a as an agent. Um, you know, shame on me, but I thought that uh, uh, having the the head of your union and one of the, the top agents in the game at the time, uh, who had Bobby Orr as his first uh, client, I said, you know, I went after him, and uh, he took me on, and I think you know he was he would lean more towards me signing an NHL contract than a WHA. Right. So that might have led to it also, but I don't remember getting a lot of calls or uh, interest from from Minnesota, which was just fine with me. I mean, the other way around, I could have used maybe a little more bartering, but uh, I got a pretty good contract. I, uh, looking back and, and hearing what some other guys made in, in our sport and other sports, I had a pretty good contract. And it was a one-way, so oh, even when the Rangers sent me down to Providence for that first year, uh, I still got paid the same, same money, so it was pretty good. You're coming to camp, and this is not – the California Golden Seals or an expansion team. This is the storied franchise with a number of future Hall of Famers like Roger Bear, Jean Bertel, Brad Park, Ed Jockerman. And what's that like going to camp? You're a young kid, a, a lot of seasoned veterans, a very, very good team. Uh, the Cat Francis uh, running the show. Uh, what was that training camp like and that entire experience for you? You know, I wish I could remember like specific things but uh, I just remember being awful nervous. 
And uh, the camp was in, in Kitchener, Ontario, which uh, Kitchener has a, a junior A team we played against for two years. So, you know, I knew where the Kitchener Rangers were, the New York Rangers, but going to training camp, and like I said, meeting some of my boyhood idols, I mean, Eddie Jockerman and Roger Bear and Jean Rattel, I mean, you know, they weren't ancient, but to me, they were a lot older. <laughs> right. And, uh, but all I remember is that they were first class. They they didn't treat me like, hey, this what this kid's trying to take my job type of deal. It was they welcomed me with open arms, uh, first class. Emil Francis was first class, and even though I got sent to the minors, uh, I understood it. You know, they, the Ranger the Rangers played the Bruins a year before for the Cup, so right. they had a Stanley Cup caliber team uh, at that time. So I was like, yeah, sure, I'll go. I go to Providence, wherever that is, Providence, Rhode Island. <laughs> 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 uh, it was funny. I, I went down to down there yesterday with Joe McDonald from the Providence Journal and kind of went back in time. And we went, went down to Cranston, where I used to live down there, just to kind of jog my memories. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like a, a walk in, in, in the past, and I really enjoyed it. So, But I, I still have uh, friends from, from that year and still have some really fond memories of my Providence days. You played for a real good coach too, Johnny Muckler, uh, that, that, mm-hmm. that first year. And, uh, a, a lot of seasoned veterans on that team and you know, guys like John Bednarski and, uh, Larry Satruck guys who later played for the Rangers. Uh, you right. won the rookie of the year. So you've just kind of had your memory, uh, memories relived yesterday down in, uh, Cranston in Providence. But, uh, what, what stands out about that, that first pro season for you? Well, you know, that was my first time away from home as I, I didn't have to move out in junior. So, you know, it was exciting. Uh, you know, I was getting paid some pretty good money, so I didn't have to worry about money. Uh, there was uh, like 10 single guys living in an apartment building. Uh, I, I had a roommate, Andre Palafi, who was a, another member of the team, uh, older than me. Uh, so, uh, and uh, as a matter of fact, I went to the reunion, Reds reunion this summer just because Andre was going to be there. I hadn't seen him in 45 years. Wow. He married a Providence girl, so he looked just the same. He looked great. So it's, it's great now to really go back and, and reminisce and meet people and guys that you played with, maybe even just for a short time. Um, my memories of that year are, uh, you know, fairly clear. So, you know, a couple of road trips we had and, the one game I remember the, uh, the most is um, really in the finals. We went to the Calder Cup finals that year, and uh, we were down three games to nothing with the fourth game in Providence. And we went into overtime. I scored in overtime the win, and I, I turn around. I, I swear this is my memory of it. There's about three guys on the ice to congratulate me. I'm like, well, where did everybody go? <laughs> well, as I found out later, that most guys in the American Hockey League have already got their U-Hauls all packed up, ready to go back home. <laughs> they didn't really want to go back to Hershey for Game Five. <laughs> That's funny. So, you know, yeah, it was, it was. You know, maybe it was more than three, but to me, it was it was uh, a memory that I, I remember. So there couldn't have been that many on the ice, you know. But, right. Uh, tell me uh, a little bit about the American League. Is the one guy I always remember shoot the puck, Larry Satcherak. He had 27 goals from on defense that year. Had, had, half a year. Boom, boom. We called boom, boom. <laughs> he had a hard slap shot. 
but uh, I always joked with him that you know the safest place would be in front of the net because. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he could. But uh, uh, Larry, Larry, myself, and a guy by the name of Jerry Teeple, God rest his soul, he passed away at a young age. Uh, we kind of were that year. The three of us hung out together, so we were we were good friends. And uh, I've only run into him once since. I was at the All Star game. I think it was in in uh, uh, Colorado in like '99 or something. And the guy comes in the uh, comes out to the lobby to to get me. He goes, a friend of yours is in the bar. So I walked in. Who's in there? But Larry <laughs> I hadn't seen him since '73. I don't think maybe '74 when he was up with the Rangers. But right. we kind of lost track of each other. So it's great to see him, and I haven't seen him since. But right. uh, he was doing good. Well, speaking of that next year with the Rangers, it's your first full year with the team. Although you're injured, you have a tremendous season. It's also interesting to know. It started out tremendous. It didn't end tremendous. <laughs> yeah, it started out. Uh, it started out quite productive for you, and uh, gave a lot of promise to the future. One of the players that also joined the Rangers that year was Derek Sanderson. Coincidentally, um, right from the Boston Bruins. I know you have a, a lot of respect for for Derek at that time. You know, he in, in his book, he would freely admit he was not at his best. He was going through a lot of struggles. Did you, I, I guess my, my question is, were you aware of how deep his problems were back then, personally? Because he was still productive on the ice, still, well, still a great yeah. teammate and fun to be around. Were you aware of what he was going through on a, on a personal level? No, I, I really wasn't. And, uh, and, you know, he never said anything. Uh, the thing is that he, he had just come out of the WHA as the highest paid athlete in sports. I mean, he seemed to be on top of the world. He had uh, a, a girlfriend at the time who was a, a Ford agency model by the name of Jill, as I remember. Beautiful girl. And uh, he seemed to be doing fine. He had a good year in New York that year. And then when they traded him to St. Louis, I believe he had the best uh, point production year of his career. The yeah, next you're right. Year. So you're right. He's playing I'm with not, uh, playing with uh, Guy LaRose's dad, Claude Claude LaRose and Chuck Luffley. Yeah, and Chuck scored fifty that year, I think. And they never signed him. <laughs> but right. anyway, that's another story. But uh, oh no, but we, you know we, that was the seventies. It was a, a lot of fun. We used to uh, the Jets and the Giants would play in the afternoon, Sunday afternoon. We play Sunday night at Madison Square. We'd all go to a bar on First Avenue called the Tittle Tattle, and and you know they're open till four in the morning. So what's a twenty-year-old kid to do? Uh, but th that was the lifestyle then. We all lived, except for Derek and and Rod Gilbert, who lived in Manhattan. The rest of us lived in Long Beach, Long Island, and that's that's where the practice rink was because you could never practice at Madison Square. And so we have to uh, get back out there uh, Monday morning uh, in time for practice very often. Right. But it was, uh, you know, it was a magical time. I mean, I still get goosebumps going into Madison Square Gardens. Uh, you know, I, I love my time with the Rangers. The second year wasn't as good. It was a transition year. They, they, uh, they fired Emil Francis. They, they traded uh, obviously uh, Derek and, and Eddie Jockerman and, and then the big trade with Espo. So it was a year of transition, and um, and the only year I didn't make the playoffs in my career. Wow! And uh, you know, and I was a, a kid just maybe having a little too much fun in New York, and they decided, you know, if you're on a winning team, it, it, it it's, some things can be overlooked, but when you're on a losing team, uh, I was the guy, the odd man out, and 
really thank goodness for it that I ended up in Boston. I could have ended up anywhere, and uh, I, got, I got a break. Recently, talking with Brad Park about that trade, and the thing about it is that you know Kenny Hodge obviously had a fantastic career, and yeah. but at that point. He's nearing the end, and you're at the beginning. And that, that, that was the biggest thing that stood out to me, even uh, as, a, as a fan, was at, at that time, there's about a 10-year age, age difference there. And Kenny had kind of fallen out of favor somewhat with Don Cherry. He was in, in, back in those days, when you're 33, it was more like today's 38. It was kind of like you were, you yeah. were, you were getting a little bit uh, to the end there, where, again, you were at the beginning stages of your career. So the, the trade surprised a lot of people. Did it surprise you? Did you have any indication uh, that that was going to happen? <laughs> well, you know, nobody wants to be traded. And, uh, you know, I always had the dream, especially like uh, going to camp the first year and that they were coming off the Stanley Cup finals. I thought, hey, this is going to be great. You know, ticker tape parade down Fifth Avenue. Mm -hmm. and I'm going to be part of this organization that's going somewhere. But it, it wasn't to be for the organization or for me. And uh, no, I, admittedly, I, uh, I I wasn't the most disciplined person off the ice. Uh, but I really didn't have a lot of mentorship or leadership because they were they were getting rid of a lot of their leaders on the team also. Right. But um, coming to Boston uh, at that time, I think it, I, I never blamed anybody. I, I could see why they would want to possibly get rid of me because they they thought uh you know either i was a bad influence on other guys or i i was soon gonna gonna be uh you know uh a wreck myself and out of the league um i never looked at myself that way but i guess they did and who knows what stories they heard but uh when i got to boston it was you know i i really didn't change a lot of things i ended up getting an apartment downtown but we had we had a good team we had a better team we had a winning team and we had a great coach and uh, just the, the combination of veterans and young guys uh, made hockey fun again. And I'll tell you, that year of 75 was not fun. And I just kind of lit a new life in me. And, uh, and it just started from there, and it, it continued going, going forward for me for the next 12 years. So I, I got very lucky. No, absolutely. It, it was certainly a, a special time and a special team. But before, I wanted to step back into 1975 season real quick. And you're on the other side of what I consider to be one of the obviously top biggest trades ever. That was just a blockbuster trade. Phil Esposito coming to New York. What was it like being on the other side of that thing? It had to be an incredible shock with the Rangers relinquishing both uh, Brad Park and Jean Rattel. Well, you know, it was bittersweet. Um, I remember the day it happened. Uh, we were in California playing the Golden Seals. And uh, I went down for breakfast, and I walk in, and Rod Gilbert's got tears in his eyes. I'm like, Rod, what's wrong? He said, they traded Randy. I mean, he just could not believe it. They grew up playing junior hockey. I think even before that, they grew up playing together. They'd been on the Rangers together. They'd always been together. And uh, he could not believe that they traded. And then to the Boston Bruins, the arch nice. Oh, it was unbelievable. All four of those guys thought their careers were over, but. Um, and then, but on, on, the, on the good side of it for me, I got a chance to play on the same line as, uh, as Phil Esposito for a while. So, right. you know, I, I would never have had a chance to do that. Uh, so, and then ha getting Phil in Boston and knowing what I know now afterwards by reading his book or whatever, 
that he wanted one of his old wingers. It wasn't like he wanted to get rid of me, but he wanted one of his old wingers, from what I read. Right. And uh, unbeknownst to me, they had soured on on Kenny for some reason, and so they made the trade. But uh, so you know, it wasn't uh, it wasn't like they wanted me out. Uh, the players didn't like me or or anything like that. They were just cleaning house and trying to retool their team in New York. But I got a chance uh, to to play with my original teammates, uh, Don Littell and, and Brad Park again, and I got a chance to play with Phil in New York. And uh, and Rod Gilbert, who you know, was uh, a great friend at that time, too. What, what a classy guy he was, uh, even to this day, every time I see him. So I, I, love, I, love, I love my time in New York, honestly. As you get to Boston, now, as you we're talking about New York and the style of play there, your goal, your job was to take care of the offensive end of the ice and to score. Uh, Cat didn't, didn't really have a, he wasn't really a system type of guy back then. Of course, you come to Boston and Don Cherry has a, a much different approach and a successful approach. You're, you're a young guy, you've been taught what you've been taught to that point. And the interesting dynamic, and again, when I had had talked to uh, to Brad Park recently, just saying he just felt like Don Cherry didn't quite know what to make of you or do with you at the beginning. But then, of course, everything just kind of clicks perfectly. But I, I'm assuming that uh, you were at the uh, receiving end of uh, rather high-volume critiques from uh, well, Don I, Cherry. I, I have a couple of, of- memories that stand out pretty well one of them as don likes to tell also because the very first day we go on the ice uh, we're skating around with peter McNabb and wayne cash and bobby schmutz i think and don just comes over and takes his glove off sticks his hand out and he calls and says hey ricky boy oh he called me ricky boy he says hey you're looking a little bigger you've been working out and i i just looked at him you know my sarcastic way but didn't mean to be disrespectful at all. I just said, no, Don, I just had a good summer. Because <laughs> 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 I did. I spent that summer in Long Island, in Long Beach, Long Island, which is like Hampton Beach where I live now. So Christ. I did have a good summer. And okay, maybe I was a couple pounds overweight. <laughs> but in those days, you went to camp to get into shape. You did two a days for three weeks. I mean, you know, a couple pounds is going to come off pretty fast. And but uh, Smotch was laughing so hard he fell down on the ice. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I don't know if I endeared myself to the, the rest of the guys, or uh, certainly not to Don that day. But um, but as we got to know each other, you know, it was he didn't take it personal. And uh, and then he played me uh, after after camp, the opening game. He, he put me on a line with Jean Rattel and. and uh, Johnny Busick, as I remember, and I ended up scoring a hat trick. I mean, how can you not? Uh, so I thought, wow, great start. You know, here we go. And uh, and then he benched me, basically. I wouldn't call it benching. He platooned me. I didn't play regular. I played the right side and the left side, which, which really paid off in the long run. That's the only reason I, I made the Canada Cup team in 81. Um, and getting three in the first game, I ended up with 20 on the whole year. So. Right. You can imagine my lack of ice time from then on, but he was trying to drill into my head about there's two ends of the ice here, and if you don't take care of your responsibilities in this end, we're not going to let you skate into the other end. And then one game, I'll never forget it, Buffalo. We, uh, they had a two-on-one. My memory of it, I, I must have been back checking, making it a, a two-on-two, 
and uh, it was Bill Height and Danny Gare. And Danny Gare's a 50-goal scorer, and Bill Height scores two goals a year. So he's always, you know, pressing on me, cover your defense, cover your defense. Cover. So I, I, but I figured Bill Height, that you know, the dangerous guy here is Danny Gare. So I went to get him. <laughs> and don't you know Bill Height scores like his second goal of the year. And I come over to the bench, and he's just yelling and screaming at me. <laughs> and I think I, I sat for the rest of the game that game. But I know I was in the right. I took the right guy. But the odds, the odds weren't with me that night. Dad, but, you look at, yeah, you look but, at Bill. You know, outside of that, you know, I got you know, next, uh, in the playoffs that year, the first year we played, we went to play Philly in the semis. Um, and, it's, and the first two games were in the spectrum because they must finish higher in the, skip, in the standings than we did. And, uh, again, I, I wasn't playing all that regular during the game, and it went into overtime. And he comes to me in the dress room uh, in overtime, and he leans down almost like a whisper, and he goes, you're going to get the winner, right? So I, mm -hmm. I look up at him in a very normal, sarcastic way. I look at him, I said, so I must be playing, right? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and he just looks at me. He watched away, and I ended up getting the winner against Bernie Perron. And one of my one of those hard shots that just made it over the line, and that's about it off his blocker. And uh, and Terry ended up scoring in double overtime the next night. We knocked the Flyers out four straight, and then Montreal knocked us out four straight. Right in the final. But that was my first experience from going the year before, not making the playoffs, getting traded to the Stanley Cup Finals the next year. It was just a magical year. It really was. Yeah, it was a team that, when I look back at your career, uh, throughout your entire career, only four teams ended up winning the Stanley Cup, Philadelphia, Montreal, Islanders, and Edmonton. It was not easy to do, but the Bruins team was right there knocking on the door. And you have to... Yeah. You know, some you know you could look back and say maybe one player short, uh, trading deadline maybe, but you know all the you know there's other factors that come into play. I mean, you lose uh, players to injury and and things happen uh, here and there. But uh, the bottom well, there line was is no free agency in those days, so it was right. pretty hard to add a guy at the trade deadline unless you gave up something for him. Um, so I understand that with Harry, but. It always seemed that um, if we did trade a guy, we got somebody of equal value. It, we, it didn't seem like we ever added to our team. When it really wasn't that hard to figure out what you needed to do, because, you know, you had Montreal in the late 70s, Islanders in the early 80s, and Edmonton in the late 80s, and, and you knew, you, hey, we, we, need, we need a little more help here. We're, we're having trouble beating these guys. We're close, but who, who could we get possibly that would help us in? My only memory of that is when we started the season, and I don't know whether it was 82 or 84, I can't remember the year, probably 84, um, 06 and 1, and, and Harry spent a first-round draft pick to get Charlie Simmer. That's right. We were so bad. We were so bad. And, you know, Charlie was a great addition, but it was only because we sucked so bad. <laughs> you know, it wasn't yeah. like, oh, we got this guy at the trade deadline. The only the only other time I remember getting guys that helped us was in '88, my last year, when uh, Janney and Joyce came to the team from the from the Olympics, and uh, gave us another scoring line, and we went all the way to the finals. So you can see the effect, and then you look at the Red Sox this year. You can see the effect if you get the right guys at the right time. It oh, really certainly. You know the best. Sure, the best example of that in hockey in that that era was the yeah. Islanders and. Uh, 1980. What's, what's going? Right. What's going? 
So if they, um, didn't, if they didn't trade for Butchie as a second line center, they never would have won the cup all those years. So you go through the seventies, the team is as close knit as you could possibly be. I, I I feel like when I see you guys together, whether it be John Wensink or Stan Jonathan, uh, you had to get together right. last year to celebrate the 11 20 goal scores on the team. I recently was was uh, with with Peter McNabb, as you know, talking with yeah. him a little bit and. It seems like a, to this day, that group, you've played with a lot of different teams. You have great relationships with everybody along the way. But that group, that 77, 78 group, seems to be particularly close. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Uh, well, really, you know, that, that that whole group right through those three years, you know, 70, 76, 77 through the too many men on the ice, pretty much the same team. You know, Bobby Miller coming to the team. And, but we had pretty much the same team. And, uh, you know, they, we were close. Uh, we, we, everybody genuinely liked each other and backed each other up on the ice and, and, and went out together for beers off the ice and on the road. And, you know, it was, it was just, and, and then Dawn kind of made us feel special because, you know, we were the biggest draw on the road in the league and mainly because of, of his mouth. And, you know, he, He'd go into towns the night before, and there'd be a big article in the paper the next day, and people would come out to watch the Boston Bruins. I mean, he uh, he made us maybe a little bigger than we were, but then he would call us the, the lunch pail kids, like we were like right. blue collar working class guys. But we we had a lot of talent on that team, a lot of talent. It and, sure did. Uh, you know, Peter and I had breakfast one day, uh, and that's how this whole eleven twenty goal scorer thing started. And we were saying that. You know the the sad thing is when you finish second you never have a reunion. <laughs> right. <laughs> you never have a team reunion. When you finish, we finished second a lot, but uh, so then when I, I saw my plaque in my office here, I realized it's forty years ago we did that, held held that record for forty years. Then I thought, hey, let's have a reunion at least with those guys back. And Cam agreed. And, and it happened. It was a great night last year. That of course is one record that you can safely say will never be broken. Uh, it takes. Yeah, a, in, in today's era, it's, it's pretty hard to do it. And I, I, I wasn't even aware there were like three other teams that had ten scores. You know, I didn't, I didn't know that. So right. But uh, just the way it was done too, with uh, Bobby Miller scoring in the empty net. Oh, that was incredible. Yeah, I, I put that up online uh, on the Bruins alumni Facebook page because I had forgotten how unlikely and how obscenely rare of that opportunity was. Seconds left in the game. Roger Nielsen, who's a smart guy, pulling his goalie mm-hmm. in, 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 the, in the other end and uh, having the opportunity with just seconds left, <laughs> it was just incredible. They must have been down by two goals or something. I can't remember. But to not put the goalie back in on a faceoff in your own end, which is, you know. Right. Uh, it, there had to be a reason in his mind. But Absolutely. Thank goodness he didn't, you know. <laughs> no question. Now, when the team's transitioning out of the 70s, you do get an infusion of a, a guy whose number is going to be in the rafters with you, and that is Ray Bork. Yeah. Tell me a little bit. Of, right off the bat, he is a bona fide star of the National Hockey League. Tell me a little bit about your first impressions of young Ray, Raymond Bork. Uh, you know, I, I, I have a clear memory of, of him and Brad McCrimmon coming up uh, just two young kids full of energy, you know, and and, and great hockey players, uh, both of them. And, you know, uh, Ray was a little different style, a little more offensive in those days, skate the puck up the ice. Brad was more of a 
stay at home, get in your face type of defenseman. I thought they complemented each other well. Um, and they would eat everything in sight. It was, it was funny, you know, we'd, we'd have sandwiches on the bus or something, and it'd be like, are you going to eat that? <laughs> are you going to finish that? <laughs> they were like they were like young pups, like animals, just just so full of life and just loved, loved to be a Boston Bruin and, and fit right into the team right away. And obviously Ray became a, a leader and went on to have that great career. But, you know, in the beginning, I think it was important he had Brad Park there to kind of oh, right, show him right. the ropes a little bit of a, of a veteran. Bobby was gone, and Brad was was his uh, kind of mentor, I think. And uh, and then, you know, luck, uh, one of my biggest honors was being named co-captain with him in '85. Uh, and then when I retired, he went on to stay a captain for what, another 12 years. So he was a great player, great great guy. We he still plays on the, our alumni team. Uh, they were just up in northern Quebec. I didn't make the trip myself, but they went up there, and Ray was there. So. He's still playing and still loving the game, and his the, the 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 spark in his eye is still there from the first time he came to the Bruins. As it is with all you guys uh, on the ice, and the competitive yeah. edge is still there. You can still see it, but going back in, yeah. in one of my favorite teams of all times, a team that faced a lot of adversity, which was the eighty-two eighty-three Bruins team. Uh, you lose. Norm Levier early in the season, tragically. Uh, Terry O'Reilly's hurt for most of that year, doesn't play in the playoffs. But you get Pete Peters, you and Barry Peterson now, uh, about your third year together, are really clicking. You had Mike Krujelniski, and you have the best record during the regular season. I think Jerry, right. Jerry Cheevers. Right. And Jerry Cheevers, I thought, was like the, a great coach for you, too, back then. Uh, he basically, it seemed like every time you watched the game that you. You were on the ice constantly back then. Well, but, I, um, I, yeah, and, you know, I, I credit Don Cherry for that because, you know, I, Jerry in the 80s would never have had the confidence to put me in all those situations if I hadn't learned from Don in the 70s. So, um, you know, step by step, the 78, 79, 80, Don's gone, and then Jerry comes in, and I was kind of his go-to guy, and luckily... For me, you know, power play and then penalty killing. I, I don't think I killed a penalty under Don. You know, Donnie Marcotte and right. uh, Shepard and all these guys. I wasn't going to kill a penalty. Are you kidding me? <laughs> but uh, I got a chance in uh, with uh, under Cheesy and uh, ended up now <laughs> having the most uh, shorthanded goals in Bruins history. So, you know, I never saw that coming, and I didn't even start to the 80s. You know? Yeah, that's amazing. So, yeah, I didn't really, you know, I, I didn't realize that. I talk about that a lot, and I think that in addition to the stats that you see on paper is the fact that you became a very good offensive player who was a very reliable penalty defensive player, very reliable penalty killer. That's rare among uh, top scorers. The other thing you alluded to a little bit earlier is you played a lot of left wing as well. I mean, you could have easily been classified in various seasons that you played as a left wing, which is important because there was another right wing in, in the league at the time and <laughs> called Mike Bossy. And before that, it was Guy Lafleur. Um, uh, and, and at the same time in the early 80s, trust me, it wasn't uh, it wasn't great to be a right winger trying to make an all-star team in the early 80s. But um but I had, yeah, I had played some left wing, and yeah, I could have been. Uh, but they always put me down as a right winger, and I, I, yeah, I think you're right. It, it did hurt my chances at times, uh, uh, you know, when it comes to all star teams or whatever. But and then uh, really, back, 
as late as 86, 87, I played left wing on the same line with Cam his first full year. And uh, and Thomas Gradine, who they brought over from Vancouver also. And we both scored 30-something goals that year. So it was a pretty good year. Um, but that was my last full year, uh, you know, at least my last time I ever saw a power play. <laughs> the next year they, they dropped me down to the third line. So, uh, And I saw, and I know what that means because they cut your ice time down, your numbers go down, and then it's, you see the see the door. And uh, So that's what happened. Yeah. I want to ask you about Terry Riley uh, for a moment. You were teammates with him, of course. Uh, right. He was your, your, your coach. Uh, more importantly now, he continues to be a, a close friend of yours. And right. I wanted to talk a little bit about Terry Riley as you know him uniquely as a as a person, uh, and, and I guess as, as as a player when you when you first met him, and then as a person today. Well, you know Terry. Uh, I, I've never met another NHL player like Terry. I mean, there's guys that that'll take the physical role on, um, and uh, I, I, I'm not saying he liked it, but but he took the role on like it was his job, you know, and, and primarily his job. It wasn't whether any other guys are going to do it or, 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 you know, he's just one of, of a group. It was, he, he, he would be the first one that if somebody was, was getting, uh, you know, uh, abused out there or the other team was trying to take liberties with, with certain people, including myself, you know, having those guys on the team, when, when when somebody else comes in the Boston Garden, or even when you go back on the road, most of the time the other team had to worry about those guys because uh, you know if they're tough guys. Uh, most of the other teams couldn't match up to Boston when it can't come to toughness. So, and Terry was the leader, and, and I think some of the other guys knew that, and they played that strongly, uh, strong-willed because Terry was so strong-willed. And he did that right, right through his whole career, even when he was so injured and banged up. I remember him telling me when, uh, when um, uh, Al Secord came to the team, he thought, "Cool, finally," he said, uh, "I got got a nice young guy here, going to take a little of the weight <laughs> off of Terry from having to, you know, answer the bell maybe every night." Right. And then they trade Al. <laughs> and right. It was like so. All uh, you know, the weight of a lot of the the physical stuff it went back on him, but he never complained. He just took it in stride, and did you know what he what he saw as his job. And and you know, besides that, he scored over three hundred goals. And then you know, when he became a coach, it was the same mentality. You know, he didn't expect everybody to play like him, but he expected that the, the team, everybody, back each other up and make sure nobody takes any liberties and. Uh, and uh, and then we had you know Jay Miller, uh, Lyndon Byers, and, and and a few of those guys on the team. So again, the the Bruins were tough to play against. Uh, that's the type of team that he loved to to coach, I'm sure. But a good team, you know, a, a good team. Yeah, he was and, very successful uh, as a coach, and he was very successful. People forget because time goes on, and you don't really maybe know the history of it. Terry O'Reilly had had a 90-point season in the NHL. He was he was a, a terrific uh, playmaker yeah, yeah. along with everything. He's very self-deprecating. He'll tell you his own. Leading scorer, I believe, the first year I was here, 76-77. Right. He led in penalty minutes and points. He could really play, uh, and he developed yeah. himself through uh, – blood, sweat, and tears. And, of course, he was a fearsome fighter. But, you know, with the puck in his skates, he actually had a good backhander. He did a lot of little things that were uh, very, very impressive. And I, I just... Well, I, you know, I didn't realize this until he told me. He was a goalie until he was 12 years old. Oh, really? 
Yeah, yeah. Didn't know that. That's what he told me. In Oshawa, he played for the Generals, and he's from Oshawa, and he played goalie till he was twelve. So, I, I think that that explained a little why why people said he wasn't the best skater because you know he probably didn't even start skating out till he was a teenager. And as you know, you have to learn at an early age. It takes a long time to be to get to the NHL level. But he worked on it every day, first on, last off the ice. You know, they not only let on the ice, they let it practice too. So, you know, there wasn't there wasn't a lot of slacking off that was allowed by by teammates. You know, it's just good to see uh, that camaraderie still exists uh, today, stronger than ever, really. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we uh, we're, we're really more social friends now than than we were uh, back then, and, and we we don't live too far from each other, so we like to get together and. And every once in a while, Johnny Wunsick will come into town, you know, Peter McNabb. And ever since the, the reunion last year, it seems that more guys seem to be coming in. To, uh, Stan comes in once in a while. Dwight Foster's coming in for my thing. So, um, y- you know, uh, but Terry and I have become social friends uh, and, and our wives. And uh, the thing with him is that um, he, he really hasn't, Change that much. He's a little more relaxed now, I find, as we all are because right. we're older. But uh, he still has that competitive side. To him. <laughs> when when he gets on the ice, it's like that puck's his. I want that puck. Right. <laughs> and and like uh, like they joked about, uh, you know, like uh, at the face-off, you know, when, when you're playing right wing, it's only a it's only a place to line up on the face-off because you really don't have to stay on that side. <laughs> and in our alumni games, he plays defense, but it's just a place to line up on the face-off, trust me. Right, absolutely. <laughs> if that puck is going up the ice, so is he. It's funny to watch. He still has that sparkle in his eye uh, to play the game. And, you know, even even times when he's told me he's not feeling that good or uh, he's out there and he just won't quit. He'll just keep going at it and, and he just got back from the, the trip to northern Quebec for a couple of days, up to, way up there. So he still enjoys it, and you know, as do I. And hopefully, we can still do it for a couple more years. And it's also yeah. very nice to see the fact that the uh, again the close relationships that the it's such a great uh, a great vibe when you're around, whether it be the the players or the the the, the people around, like Battleship Bob Cormier or. John, right. you, you Karen Wadowski, everybody. It's just, it's a really, really a family atmosphere. Yeah, it, it is, and you know the the games are are fun. We don't play to lose, but we also don't play to blow other teams out. It's it's the prime purpose here is to raise money for their charity and for them to have fun and and, and their families and the audience. But I got to tell you, I said I, I remember. Not that long ago, the, the, we used to have some easy games. None of the games seem easy anymore. <laughs> either, either we're all getting older or, or they're getting younger, but uh, they seem a little more competitive than they used to be. But but that's okay, I mean, because we, we like to, to, to be able to skate and pass and, and play the game and have some fun without the, the hooking and holding. But um, what, what's, uh, what else is special is that you get a chance to play with other Bruin alumni that uh, are in, in different eras, you know, guys as young as the late 30s, early 40s, that are just retired, and you never get a chance to play on the same team with them or, or with the Bruin sweater on, for sure. And uh, I really enjoy that, uh, all up and down the lineup, whether it's Danny Lacatur, Andrew Alberts, you know, the really young guys, uh, Pat Leahy, 
Mike Motto. And so it's it's good to see that the, the, the Bruins alumni have these good young legs coming up and, <laughs> and hopefully they'll they'll carry on the tradition after Terry and I decide to pack it in. <laughs> hopefully no time soon. Yeah. So in, in your post-retirement, yeah. of course, the one thing that I have to mention uh, that we don't have time to go into all of it because uh, yeah. it, it's a story in and of itself, but has to be an incredible source of pride that you are a a gold medal winner with mm. the uh, U.S. national sled hockey team from 2002. What are those things in your career maybe some of the fans are, aren't really aware of? And again, that's a story in and of itself, um, and potentially a movie in and well, of itself. Well, it's such a good story, we're making a movie out of it. We're trying to make a movie out of it. We just finished the script, the right. first script on, on the story. So hopefully uh, they'll see it in a theater, not too far from today, but... Uh, that's what we're working at. Right. Yeah, it was it was the story that uh, you know through the '90s. I just coached my kids and in hockey, and and you know it was getting farther and farther away in the rearview mirror. And uh, I got a phone call in, in early 2001 from a friend of mine that uh, was a sled hockey player, unbeknownst to me, and the captain of the U.S. national uh, uh, ski team, disabled ski team. And he asked me if I uh, would be interested in coaching the U.S. National Sled Hockey Team because they're the host team in Salt Lake City in 2002, and their coach had quit in the World Championship, so they didn't have a coach. And they'd only ever won one game in their history, but would you be interested? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I'm like, sled hockey? And I'm thinking, what's that? <laughs> mm-hmm. I'd heard of it, but, you know. And then he asked, he said, you know what, sled hockey? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I know, but I had no idea. I just heard hockey. <laughs> And I heard Paralympics, and I really wasn't familiar that much with Paralympics, but it's got to be close to the Olympics, I figured. So <laughs> I, I basically made my decision in half an hour uh, when, when Rich Glopper, the manager, called me back and asked me the same questions, and I, I lied to him, too. And uh, But then I got into this world of sled hockey, which I call it the bizarro world, and and the story will, be, will come out in the movie. The movie's fictional, based on a true story, but... Most of the storylines will be the same, and I won't go into it here, but um, the great part of it was meeting these guys, meeting the sled players, um, uh, becoming friends with them, learning what, what, what their lives were about. And, you know, they all had something to overcome on an individual basis before they even played the game. And then they had to overcome, you know, only ever winning one game in their history and being seated last in their home uh, Paralympics in Salt Lake City. And then going on to win every game and the gold medal in a, in the in the gold medal game in front of the largest crowd to ever see a game a sled game to this day over eight thousand people hmm. and uh, and to do it in a shootout that went down to the last shooter I was I've never been involved in anything uh, in hockey that was that exciting and you know as a player you're only in charge of yourself but as a coach you don't want to screw it up for right. the rest of the guy. <laughs> Well, and I didn't have a big history in coaching at that at that level for sure. There was so much on the line. I was I just didn't want to screw it up. But it all worked out. And since then, they've won a bronze and three more gold medals, and they're the the top team in the world. So I, we're just we're just uh, uh, happy that we helped uh, the program really get off the ground. And now now they're uh, they're the best. You know, they they beat Canada in, in overtime and in Korea this year, 2018. It's going to be great. Three of the players are coming in for my night. Uh, two oh, of them great. live in, in Massachusetts, Joe Howard and Kip St. Germain, and, and Manny Guerra, the goalie, is coming in from Minnesota. So they're going to be on the ice with me. So I'm going to tell a little story when I'm on the ice. Uh, 
Perfect. So we began this uh, podcast prior to the interview talking a little bit about Nifty's audiobook library and that entire program, yeah. which is designed to give fans a voice, of, you know, rather than just commenting on social media or something you kind of get buried, in, but basically relating their stories of not only yourself, but right. uh, the Bruins of that era. Uh, talk a little bit of how you got involved in that and just a little bit about the program as well. Well, it, it's a unique uh, idea. A friend of mine, Al Brandano, had it several years ago now, and he's been running it called the Voice Library, and it makes complete sense to me. It was it was done, uh, uh, I think, primarily for the military, so that they would have the voices of their loved ones, uh, you know, on tape. I know myself. Uh, I might have a couple movies with my dad in it, but I don't have my dad's voice on tape that I can go to on my phone anytime. I have a couple of saved messages from my mother. Uh, who you know, they're both gone uh, for you know uh, Happy Father's Day and this this thing, but uh, I got none of my dad. So what what this was, uh, Al had the idea that um, that it would be nice if people could just tell a story, not necessarily a, a nifty story, although you know if you have one uh, that that you remember going to a game of the 70s or 80s, I mean that that would be great, uh, or just uh, of that era of the Bruins and some of your favorite memories going to the games with your dad, you know, like I did in Toronto uh, with my dad. Just, you know, just some, some good-hearted memories of, of the days gone by uh, of the old Bruins and, and old-time hockey kind of. And I, I think it's great. And, and, you know, it doesn't take very long. And uh, I and then I'd have that library to listen to for you know for the rest of my life and my kids and and anybody else can listen to it too. Uh, after the new year, I believe they'll be able to tune into a lot of the stories. So right, uh, I hope uh, some people take advantage of that and, and have a story to tell. I'm sure they will. There's a lot of fans, a lot of stories. You can see it when we uh, post on Facebook on the Bruins alumni page. People just love to share those stories. This is a little bit easier, though, and uh, you yeah. can uh, be a little more expressive. And as you said, there's nothing that replaces uh, actually having uh, the voice. But as I said, well, yeah, and then if, if they want to go on and get get uh, get it for themselves, they can, uh, you know, for their own family and, and, and stories uh, amongst their, their own family. So. It's a great thing that you can pass on from generation to generation. So I hope I hope a lot of people uh, check it out. So finally, Nifty, uh, we just wanted to say, obviously, as I said, we'll, I decided to dub this 10 seconds into our conversation, uh, Nifty November. Uh, it will, uh, <laughs> I like the name. It'll be, it'll be a little bit uh, crazy. Uh, but anyway, we wanted to just say congratulations. We're very, very proud of you. It's something that's well-deserved, not only uh, for oh, what you accomplished Mark. as a player, uh, but certainly, and I've seen, you know, firsthand, and so have thousands of others, the efforts on behalf of not only growing the game of hockey, but helping people in need throughout, uh, throughout uh, not just New England, but uh, throughout North America. And uh, well-deserved. We're very, very happy for you. It's going to be a special night for everybody, especially for yeah. you and your, and your family. And, uh, again, congratulations. Well-deserved. Well, thank you, Mark. And I, uh, honestly, it's I, I think, and I've said this before, I, I, I feel like I say it too much, but I think it's the greatest honor an athlete can ever receive. And uh, I'm just, I am so honored to to be thought of. Uh, you know, I never, 
I, I can't say I didn't think about it when nobody has worn the jersey the last five or six years, but over the last 30 years, I didn't think it was going to happen. So it, Cam told, took me totally by surprise, and I, I thank him for it. Well-deserved. Again, we appreciate you uh, going o- OT with us, Nifty. We'll see you very soon, of course. But in the meantime, yeah, thanks, and we'll uh, look forward to seeing you soon. All right. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, man. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast. Be sure to visit us at ProHockeyAlumni.org.